0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Business of Medicine series on ENT in a Nutshell. I'm Ashley Nassiri, and today we are joined by Dr. Alexander Gelbard to discuss social media as a patient outreach and research tool. Dr. Gelbard, thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Well, thanks for having me, Ashley. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk and think about how to use this powerful new tool to patients' benefit.
0: Great. So before we begin our discussion, I'd like to introduce our guest. Dr. Gelbard is a professor of otolaryngology at a tertiary academic center here in the United States. His research focuses on understanding a complex but rare disease, idiopathic subglottic stenosis, and using evidence-based medicine to derive new treatment options and algorithms. In researching a rare disease with a geographically dispersed patient population, he has turned to several mechanisms, including social media, to collect and pool data. Today, he'll shed some light on some of the benefits and potential drawbacks of using social media as a research and patient engagement tool. So let's jump right in. Dr. Gelbart, can you broadly describe which social media platforms patients most commonly use to access online support communities?
1: Well, it's a pretty large environment out there, and people use all sorts of things. The patient population that we've taken care of um, initially had turned to Facebook, and so that's the predominant platform that they've used. Facebook's also made a lot of efforts to create structures that promote communities, and these communities fit in nicely to the idea of a group of patients with a similar condition and similar lived experience with the disease. And so uh, most of the patient support groups out there are housed in Facebook.
0: What types of online communities do we typically see, and how are they different?
1: Well, you know, they're variable just like any community across the world is different. Uh, I think it's really interesting that there's some with a real positive tone and then some where it's a negative experience that turns people away. It's a real spectrum. One thing that's very important is the leadership of the patient community to maintain a positive tone and to try to ensure the veracity of the content and the group members.
0: So when patients go online to search about their disease process and learn more about it, what are some of the most common sites or groups they might come across?
1: Well, if we're just talking about idiopathic subglottic stenosis, the predominant one is a a group housed in Facebook, uh, living with idiopathic subglottic stenosis, housed by a, a real terrific patient, Catherine Anderson, who's the lead moderator for the group, who's really done a superb job of helping grow that group and nurture it and, and try to get the most out of the patient engagement to drive care forward for people with that disease. There's other groups, you know, in other places, but I think that's the biggest one that people are going to come across. Now, for other diseases and other conditions, they live in different spaces, but Facebook is a pretty common source for these online patient communities.
0: Now your research closely interacts with these communities, but overall, um, how important is it for physicians and providers in general to understand the sources of information that patients are receiving?
1: Well, Ashley, it's a great question. I think it brings up a lot of questions that our society in general is trying to grasp and and handle right now. For me, uh, trying to understand a rare disease, the online patient communities are a real unique way to reach the patients directly. And so for us in the world of adult airway disease, we're able to recruit nearly a thousand patients with a very rare disease from all over the world in less than 12 months and then follow them for three years for this study. And that wouldn't have been possible through traditional means. So just the ability to reach people all over the world with a common set of conditions is unique. The other thing that you probably don't appreciate, or or at least I didn't appreciate when I started, is how an online community creates a whole new entity. It's not just an advanced marketing technique. It's not just being able to reach and lend your voice to a group of people who all have the same condition. But it's a way for that group of people to provide feedback and stay connected to you and what you're doing, and for enthusiasm and energy to maintain and and to build for a cause or a research project. More than half research studies uh, and clinical trials fail because of recruitment. And so this really helped us recruit tremendously, but it also really kept people from leaving the study and it really kept people engaged in the results. And it really offered all, uh, us a downstream channel to be able to communicate the results back really quickly and effectively. So, these different elements besides just patient recruitment but engagement and the ability to disseminate the results i think make it a really powerful tool for research particularly in the rare disease community now the question of you know what information moves through those groups and and how do we control it you know i haven't really viewed it as a our role as physicians to control the information that comes through those groups i do try when people reach out about Different treatments, uh, techniques—you know—trying to provide evidence-based references and input is what we try to do, and I think you know that that has created a real positive tone. The group itself that we interact with is really interested in providing good, solid information to people, and that's part of why they work so hard with us on our trial to generate good information about what people could expect with their disease and the different treatments that are out there now. So I, I think. You know, these patient communities are designed to, to help patients who are suffering with a common condition. People come to them, you know, for emotional support and to find out other people like them who have the same set of issues in their lives. But they also come because they want to be done with this problem. They want a cure and they feel like the more information they have, the more savvy they are, the, the better their outcomes are going to be. And I think that's accurate. So You know, there's a lot of information out there and trying to be, um, as physicians, trying to be a source of real evidence-based content rather than opinion, I think is helpful. And that's something that our group of the North American Airway Collaborative, our group of airway surgeons has tried to do.
0: And you started to touch upon this a little bit um, in the last couple minutes, but we've all had patients who've come into an appointment who've researched their disease and accumulated some background information. And in many cases, this information is helpful in their understanding of the disease process and decision-making aspects. But in some cases, the information can be inaccurate. Have you noticed any trends, um, in how patients use social media and how that kind of information impacts their medical decision making, the treatment options they seek, or even disease outcomes.
1: Yeah, I think it offers some interesting quandaries for us as physicians because traditionally, uh, new techniques treatments are described. They are then, you know, followed through time, and they're typically reported initially in case series and then in larger trial based structures. And that can take a couple years, honestly, to get real reliable information. However, you hear these patients, uh, they they get a treatment that's been provided by one provider at a certain place, and they talk to their community about how well it went or how poorly it went or what the benefits were. And that information moves through an entire community of people all over the world within minutes. So... The ability to communicate information and uh, on new techniques moves a great deal faster than our traditional reporting infrastructure. And so it makes for some real challenges to, to try to navigate that and, and to try to provide reliable information or to provide the, at least the information to patients in a way that they can understand that it's, it's not proven yet. I would say that, you know, we're talking about social media today and really what we're talking about is an online community or an online network of patients. We really have been living with networks of physicians for a long time. That's what our societies are. They kind of bring our big world of otolaryngology or dermatology or urology down in smaller and smaller pieces of people with very common interests and a lived experience with patients that's very similar. And so What happens at an academic meeting, even before the current pandemic, where you'd physically go, you'd meet and talk with people you know and trust, where you have a physical, you know, where you have a a relationship with, and you understand them and they understand you, and you talk about the tough problems that you take care of and what are they doing for them. And the things that they say, they say, well, you know, I'm doing this new technique and it seems really to be working well. We kind of take that information back uh, to our own practices a lot of times, even without evidence-based medicine. And we say, huh, I wonder if that would work. And a lot of times we try these techniques out when there's a, a pretty good balance of risk to benefit. So it, it's just kind of, I think what social media has done and, and a really integrated group of patients has tipped the balance a little bit from just the surgeons being able to do that to now the patients requesting that a little bit more, uh, you know, kind of puts these excess pressures on physicians to really being on top of the information that's out there and um, really be good purveyors of content and be able to communicate where understanding starts and, you know, uh, hypotheses stop. So I, I think it, it, it creates some good pressures for us as physicians. You know, it's, it puts us in new roles.
0: So. When we look at the patients or the types of patients who look to online support communities for information or um, forming relationships or connections with those in similar situations, is the group of patients that uh, looks for these opportunities fundamentally different than those who do not use online communities?
1: Well, you know, there's there's probably a good deal of literature about that. And within our group of patients, we found that The patients who use social media are typically a little bit younger in their 30s to 50s, um, where the patients who don't are a little bit older. It's a pretty common demographic for social media use in general, I think, in the United States. Then, you know, then you get to the question of, well, what types of diseases drive patients to social media? And I think chronic diseases in general, um, diseases without real, robust, immediate cures where people suffer for a long time. Uh, also, diseases where patients experience very similar symptoms and scenarios, I think, promote online connections in these health communities. The, the tighter the lived experience with the disease is, the more people feel like they have in common with the other people online. So I think for a lot of rare diseases, they manifest similarly. And, and that's why they're so effective at drawing online communities of patients together.
0: Now, when we're speaking from a practical standpoint, how do you actually use social media or online support communities to reach patients who are geographically distant or in the case of your prior work, uh, part of this rare disease community? How does that actually play out on a logistic level?
1: That's a great question and really gets to the heart of how do you use these new tools to affect change in the world? And I'm sure there's a number of ways to do it. And the approach we've taken has been seeking out the leadership of one of these patient groups, explaining, you know, who we are as a collection of airway surgeons in the North American Airway Collaborative, and asking the patients, you know, what are the questions that they have with their disease? What are the things that they want answered? What are the biggest issues that they have in their lives right now? And hearing what they had to say, and then telling them. You know, for us as airway surgeons, what are the biggest questions we have, and then working to find a common ground where we had a common set of questions that we wanted to answer, and then working together in a real prospective, hypothesis-driven way about deriving new content and 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 a clear understanding of what the treatments out there are available, what people are using, and how they work, and I think that was a real holistic kind of genuine approach. Um, And we all, you know, both surgeons and patients really felt positive about the interaction and the information we gained for people that way.
0: What about if you're in a situation that you're treating a disease that's rare, um, that doesn't already have an established online support community, and you would be interested in forming such a thing? Do you have any recommendations for how you would go about doing something like that?
1: You know, I, I think number one, uh, as those communities are are derived for patients. And so really, I think the impetus for one of those rare disease groups needs to be the patients, the patients wanting to do it. Facebook itself has a number of different tools and training for uh, moderators and online support community leaders. And so trying to engage those tools would, I think, be worthwhile. And really having a patient create the group and you know, certainly being able to solicit input from, you know, uh, surgeons and physicians all over the world, but um, having the patients really drive that community, I think is real important and makes it really centered on how the disease is affecting their lives and helps make sure that all the, the questions that are, are asked are oriented towards them and their disease and, and how to make their lives better.
0: Are there any unexpected uh, trends or uh, things that you've come across in working with these online support communities that have been either challenging or beneficial to your research or your patient outreach?
1: Well, it's just a question of speed and scale that, you know, in the, the rest of modern society, I think we understand real well. Medicine is still coming to terms with these new features of our lives. Um... And it's still, medicine, you know, traditionally is has been linked to the interaction between one doctor and one patient. And so the speed and scale has been, you know, pretty human. Now it moves much faster. And I think I've been surprised by the speed with which information can move through that community and the scale of change that you can affect by really working with a community. Um, those two things I think are unique. Um, and... and really make me feel like this is an important tool and it's going to continue to drive change forward, particularly for rare disease communities, but for other groups of patients as well. The other thing that I think is really important is the, the leadership of that patient group is really critical to making sure that the tone is positive, that the environment, a good environment, you know, based on mutual respect and understanding and civility and that really helps create a good environment for patients to learn and share and connect. And so as a moderator leading one of these groups, I think really putting a lot of emphasis on those items of creating a healthy environment, that's really important. And, and that's really going to determine the success or failure of your group to uh, provide change and, and provide benefit for your constituents.
0: You started to touch upon this a little bit, but what are some of the drawbacks uh, of using an online community for patient outreach or research, whether it be from the physician or provider perspective or from the patient perspective?
1: Well, you know, I think information moves through that group very fast and people want to be on the cutting edge as patients of the newest, best things out there. And um, and I think that's important and uh, totally understandable but just keeping yourself fully appraised as a patient that the cutting edge isn't always proven and things that look promising often don't play out to really make a dramatic difference over the longer term with more rigorous study. And so those are challenges that you have to understand going in and it makes for a new kind of dynamic as a patient. Um, As a provider, you know, it it, the interactions you have with your patients and the treatments that they receive, you know, really get communicated to a lot of people. And and that's, you know, just emphasizes our role as stewards of responsible content and, um, you know, having evidence basis for what we do as much as we can.
0: It sounds like, you know, social media serves as just another route of communication and potentially can expand the reach of physicians to more than just that one-on-one in-person encounter that we're more typically used to. Um, If someone is interested in pursuing um, work with an online community like you have, what are some examples that they can look to uh, to learn more about this and to learn how to get involved?
1: I think you know, working with a community where you have an, a, a vested interest in the outcome of their, their treatment is important because um, it, you know, it shows that you care and that you're really interested in learning about their disease. So, starting with something that you care about and, and tackle clinically, I think, is important. Um, there's a number of groups uh, and online communities, uh, you know, all across the spectrum uh, that, that are a testament to the power of patient support groups and patient support communities um, that really drive care forward, whether it's groups that are focused on acoustic neuroma and really work to help patients understand what their treatment options are and what the results of the current therapies are, whether it's jugular paragangliomas, whether it's cystic fibrosis. You know, there are a number of groups that have worked closely with clinicians To help provide information to patients about what the disease that they have is connected with, what the different treatment options are, and what the results of those treatments are to the lived experience afterwards. I would say that beyond just a way to connect with people, these groups create something totally new and different. And that is uh, something that we see in our modern societies when a group of people live together. They create a common culture and shared norms and unique perspectives on interpreting the world around them. And there's momentum and energy uh, that moves through one of these groups, uh, whether it's in the real world or in an online community. And so that is another thing that I think makes the group really powerful for rare disease, because when you uh, link up patients' goals with surgeons' goals, then you you drive their care forward in a really positive way. And their online community is really able to support research in a new way by making sure people stay involved in the study, stay aware of what the results are, and um, help drive that study to completion. We don't really appreciate how hard that can be for a lot of studies, but it, it's a it's a big challenge for most research studies to maintain engagement and prevent dropout. Um, and so that's another thing that the online community does besides this channel for communication.
0: Are there any specific resources that you recommend for our listeners who want to learn more about either developing a community or uh, working uh, with an existing one?
1: Well, I think it's pretty new. Um, we've certainly written some about our experience. Dr. Sunil Verma, and one of my colleagues within our North American Airway Collaborative, has also been very interested in this and has written a couple articles about the experience of NOAC with these online communities. And it sort of is a testament to the, the positive nature of the tone um, of the content that's on these sites and the, the real power of of these communities to influence medical decision-making and an engagement with uh, disease and the, uh, an understanding of the treatment options. So those would be two places to start within our otolaryngology community. You know, Across the rare disease spectrum, the National Organization for Rare Disease and the NIH are both two excellent resources that offer toolkits for patients with a rare disease to start a support group and think about some of the issues involved in uh, creating a group and some of the benefits that that group can provide.
0: Wonderful. Well, Dr. Gilbard, it's been a pleasure having you on our show today. Thank you so much for joining us.
1: Dr. Nusseri, I really appreciate the chance to talk and I'm uh, excited to keep hearing about your perspectives on the world and the intersection of medicine and our society.
0: Well, folks, that about wraps up another episode of the Business of Medicine series on ENT in a nutshell. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll catch you next time.